if you're a guest with us today uh, or just been a while since you've been with us, we are in John's Gospel, and we're studying through John's Gospel, and today we come to the last of the miraculous signs that John records in his Gospel, the big one, the final one, the most dramatic one. Uh, this miracle is different than changing water into wine. This, diff- this is different than, than giving sight to a blind man or feeding 5,000. It's different because no other sign in this gospel so clearly foreshadows the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus himself. No other sign so clearly pictures the gospel as the raising of a dead man. In, in other words, the raising of Lazarus is not the only resurrection you should be thinking of. Jesus' resurrection is coming. And it doesn't just show us Jesus' power over death. This resurrection story communicates Jesus' deep love for us. It, to me, the, some of the most important lines in the story are there near the end in verse 35 and 36 where Jesus weeps. And the Jews say, see how he loved him. See how he loved Lazarus. This is the heart of the story. I mean, this is the heart of the story. The the compassion of Jesus Christ is at work to raise a dead man. It's not just about the power of creator God to give life, for Jesus to come and speak life into a, a, a dead moment. It's not just the power of God It's not just the power of God over something. It's the power of of God in someone's life, motivated by his rich, deep compassion. So once Jesus has set his love and affection on you, listen to this, nothing could ever separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. No height nor depth. Not death, not persecution, not distress, not trial, not tribulation. Nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. And you can be sure that a resurrection is coming. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is not just a sign of God's power. It's a statement of his love, his unrelenting love and compassion. So I want to show you, I want to show you the deep love of Jesus from... From three angles, you know, um, a good photographer will, will, will get pictures from different angles. And I want to show you three angles this morning on the love of Christ in this story. So I want you to see the wisdom of Christ's love, the compassion of Christ's love, and the valor of Christ's love. His wisdom, the wisdom of his love, the compassion of his love, and the valor of his love. Uh, And we'll take those one at a time. Number one, I want to begin with the wisdom of Christ's love. This point is a little longer than the rest, so don't panic if you start to get hungry still during this point, okay? All right? So just bear with me. We'll spend a little more time on the first point. Verse 3, look at the wisdom of Christ's love. When Lazarus is about to die, in verse 3, his... Sisters send a message to Jesus. And look carefully at the message. What is it that they send to Jesus? What words do they send to Jesus? They send these words. Lord, 
he whom you love is sick. The one that you love is sick. They sent that message to Jesus. This is so instructive for us because here's what it means. It means that the love of Christ might include, no, the love of Christ probably will include trials and tribulations and sufferings in your life. The love of Jesus Christ will likely include trouble and suffering and pain and hardships. And I don't like that idea. You don't like that idea. I don't like that idea. Uh, it, it just, I thought, I thought I, if I did the right thing and yielded my life to Jesus, things would get easier. Things would get better. If Jesus loves me, why was my son born with Down syndrome? If Jesus loves me, why was my husband the one to get cancer? If Jesus loves me so much, why does MS have me stuck in this wheelchair? I thought Jesus loved me. And yet here it is in black and white. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Very sick. How can this be? What's the reason? Verse 4. It's for the glory of God. Now, I know that sounds cliche. And if you've been in church life any length of time, it sounds cliche. We get, that's because we give pat answers that have some element of truth in them. But Jesus goes way beyond the cliche this morning. Listen, it's for the glory of God. And look at the next phrase. After that, it says it's for, it's for God. Jesus, when he heard this, said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Mark this, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So that the Son of God might be saved seen in this moment of suffering. Remember chapter 9 of, of John's gospel where the man was born blind? He's, 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 his whole life he's been blind. And they start, the disciples start asking and others start asking, who sinned? Him, his parents, his grandparents? Jesus said, neither. This is for the glory of God. What does he mean? He means that in this moment of suffering, in this moment of suffering, there's going to be a revelation of who the Son of God is. What Jesus is saying is, in effect, you and I need to abandon our simplistic notions of, of, of linear thinking, like good people live good lives and bad people have painful lives. You need to abandon that notion. It's not true. Abandon your simplistic notion that, that good people have good lives and bad people have bad, painful lives, therefore I should try to live good. Now Jesus says it's way more complicated than that. In fact, the Bible teaches it's far more sophisticated than that. The biblical answer that we see over and over again is this, that the Son of God wants to be revealed in your moment of suffering. The pain, the trials, the difficulties... There's so much more happening. Every incident that happens to a Christian, every good time and bad time, every single incident has not just one purpose but a thousand, each interwoven with every other incident so that God is making a beautiful tapestry out of your life, one that will reflect his power and goodness in your life, not only to you but also through you to others. Romans 8, right? Everything 
is being woven together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction, Paul says. I wish he had added a little parenthetical. This light momentary affliction, which doesn't feel light at all right now, is producing in us an eternal weight of glory, an eternal beauty that's beyond all comparison. Mary and Martha, you can't see this now, but I promise you, there's something beautiful coming. So when someone is suffering or sick or in your own life, how do you pray when this happens? There's a gospel reminder here in verse 3 that I don't want you to miss. It's, it's, a, it's loaded with gospel and with grace. Look at it, verse 3 again. What is the basis of their request? Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Do we pray that way? Do you and I pray that way? Or, or is it more like, Lord, he's a good person. He attends church. He's been a deacon for 35 years. He gives money to the poor. He doesn't deserve this. That's not gospel prayer. That's not how we pray. Jesus is teaching us something this morning. He's teaching us to pray like they send this message to him. Like if we think of prayer as sending a message to Jesus, Jesus is, uh, the, Martha and Mary are sending this message to Jesus. Lord, the one that you love is sick. The one on whom you have set your affection has a need. We should pray that way for each other. Lord, the one that no one can snatch from your hands, he still needs you. The one whose many sins have been totally forgiven, she needs you again. Lord, the one whose shame you took on yourself, she still needs your mercy. Lord, will you help her? The one whom you love is sick. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear the difference between gospel praying and, and man-made religious prayers that just sound like life's not fair? There's a difference. You can pray on the basis of God's faithfulness. You can pray on the basis of his faithfulness to you, or you can pray on the basis of your half-kept promises to him. This may be one of the main reasons why you are not becoming a great heart in the midst of suffering. This might be one of the reasons why I'm not becoming a great heart in the midst of the pain and suffering, why you don't have more poise and strength in the midst of suffering, why you feel more like you're being punished when God makes it hard for you than refined by a loving Father. It may account for why we lack true peace and rest on the other side of prayer. Lord, the one, start praying like this. Start praying like this for yourself and for your friends and for your neighbors and for those that you care the most about. Lord, the one that you love is sick. 
Now, there's one other thing to do as we think about the wisdom of his love. We're, we're, we're discovering that the wisdom of his love is such that he's coordinating and orchestrating everything in my life on the basis of his love that I'm praying in accordance with and grounded in the basis of his love. And then the third thing about the wisdom of his love is to simply wait. Pray and wait. This is really hard. This is so hard to do. After we pray, we wait, not passively. Waiting passively is not the same thing as waiting in faith. Look at verses five and six. You might have thought for a minute, wait a minute, the translators missed something. They've got this sentence wrong. Is this how the original language reads? Look at verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Some modern translations try to kind of mute that a little bit, um, but the better renderings of this verse are, therefore, because of that, he stayed two days longer. Mary and Martha almost certainly received word back from the messenger so they send a message to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Almost certainly they received a message back. This illness is not going to lead unto death. It's for the glory of God. Awesome. Jesus will be here any minute. Six hours go by. He's not here. Lunchtime passes. Evening, the sun goes down. Jesus doesn't show up. Next day, no Jesus. Next evening, no Jesus. I thought you loved us, Jesus. Where is he? The Bible says purposefully and emphatically, therefore, Jesus delayed for two days. What's going on here? Tim Keller writes, Jesus Christ delays to the point where the human mind can no longer see how he could ever fulfill his promise. What God is doing is bringing you to a place where you stop hoping in yourself. To the end of every other hope, he wants to be the rescuer and the one who saves. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Be still and wait patiently for him. Listen to that again. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be still and wait for him. What Martha and Mary are learning and what you and I need to learn this morning is that Jesus Christ can be fully trusted in the waiting and that his love is what's behind that. And that when I'm certain of his love, when I am certain of his love, I know he's coming. It may not be when I want him to come, but he's coming. His love for us is the coordinating factor over all of our circumstances, and therefore, we should judge our circumstances by his love, not the other way around. When I understand who God is and how much he is for me, I can wait with perseverance in the midst of suffering. And his love for me makes waiting possible. 
It makes waiting in hope possible. So there's the wisdom of his love, a love that coordinates all the details of my life, is the basis of all my prayers, and that which gives me hope as I wait. Now let me tell you this. Let me share with you the second thing about his love. This is the compassion of Christ's love. Drop down to verse 33 and think with me about the compassion of Jesus' love. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, Jesus is now here. He showed up. He's not all the way at the tomb yet, but he's, he's there. And when Mary came to where he was, he, she went out to meet him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw that, he looked at Mary and he said, look, sister, come on, you need to tighten up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get this thing together. Is that what he said? No, because it's hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Have you ever tried when you're really in a mess? You know, stuck in, stuck in a slew of despair and you're going to just pull yourself. You can't do it. You can't help yourself. That's not what Jesus does because Jesus has compassion and he weeps with her. Look at this. This, the, 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 what's happening in the narrative. Look at verse 33. Okay, a little Bible study moment here. Bible study moment. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 35. Look at verse 36. What do you see in all three of those verses? Verse 33, Jesus is deeply moved. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Why would the translators uh, or the, the King James Committee that put these chapter breaks in back in the 16th century, they put the chapter breaks in for a reason. They put the verses. The verses weren't originally here like this, right? We understand that? So the, the verses were not originally here. So they're breaking this, they're breaking John's gospel into chapters and breaking it into verses. And they're doing that to help the readers to be able to refer to the text. And, and it's, good. it's good. It's good and helpful to us that we have chapter breaks and verses. Why would that translation committee or that, that group that put those breaks together, why would they just give verse, why would verse 35 be the shortest verse in the Bible? It's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. It's two words. Why would they give it its own, why would they give it its own verse? Jesus wept. Here, I don't, I have not been in communication with the committee, so I don't know. But here's my hunch. They wanted to highlight the un- relenting compassion of Jesus. Jesus wept. The fully God, fully man, son of God is fully compassionate. Jesus wept. Sometimes men are men are afraid to weep because it's not manly to cry and Then as you get older, your own ability to kind of control your emotions starts to break down. I see 60, 70, and 80-year-old men, their eyes get teared up and they well up. There's no more manly person in the world than Jesus, the Son of God. No one embodied humanity 
and manliness more than Jesus. And the Bible says in verse 35, in two words, driven by his love and compassion for those whom he loved, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus wept. Then verse 36 says, see how he loved. The Jews, right, again, some of the Jews not being for him, but some Jews listening, some Jews watching, some, some being interested. See how he loved them. See how he loved him. What's John trying to show us? He's trying to show us that Jesus Christ is the most compassionate human being that has ever lived. Why is he weeping? When he knows he's, listen, when he knows he's about to walk up to this stone cold grave and raise a man from the dead, you would think he'd be happy. You'd think he'd be laughing. You'd think he'd be, you'd think he'd be staring at the face of that, that stone wall like, are you kidding me? You're going to keep me from raising him from the dead. You'd think he'd at least scoff at it. But why is he weeping? Because he's not necessarily just thinking about what he's about to do to raise Lazarus from the dead. He personally feels the grief of sin and death, especially as it has touched his three friends. And when he, like when they hurt, he hurts. This has always been true of God's people. It's always been true of God and his people. Because Jesus has bound himself so tightly to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Jesus has bound himself so tightly to you and me, he is in deeper sympathy with us than any mother has ever been with her child, than any father with his son, than any lover to a spouse. It says in Psalm 56 that God has put every one of my tears in his bottle. You should go check this out. Psalm 56, God collects our tears in a bottle. It's a metaphor that describes how compassionate God is for his people. He collects tears. He knows the tears that have rolled down your face. God says, listen, in effect, God is saying, I know more about your pain and your hurt than you do. If Jesus, all right, here we go. If Jesus has, that much, if Jesus has this much compassion and empathy for us, are you ready? You know where I'm going. If Jesus has this much compassion and empathy for us, how should we, who are followers of Christ, relate to those around us in need? Do you count tears when you enter a room? Do, you, do, do people sense from you that you care more about yourself than, uh, I'm sorry, do people... Do people sense from you that you care more about them than yourself? Or are most of your conversations one-sided? Do people sense from you that you are a safe person? Do, do people have the freedom with you to open up the vault of their life and not feel like you're going to fix them and answer every question and, and have something to say about all? I mean, can, are you safe? Can you be trusted? Do you actually, do you have compassion? Do they sense your gentleness? Do people sense your gentleness and compassion? Look today at the weeping Savior who has compassion 
And let me just make a quick connection to what we're going to do next week as we try to serve Roanoke and, and engage our neighbors. Let me just make the connection between compassion and serving the community or compassion and trying to, to connect with other people. Serve Roanoke next week is not about getting people to come to our church. That's not the strategy. Serve Roanoke is about us embodying the interest and compassion of Jesus to a community that needs Christ. And maybe they'll come to faith in Christ and, and go to a church on the other side of town because that's closer to them. That's good. They don't have to come to our church. Maybe it would, maybe it would be something like this this week as we serve, next week as we serve together, that, that you and I would begin to have more compassion and interest in one another as we serve alongside of each other. Connect compassion with service. Connect compassion. Connect the compassion of Jesus Christ here with what we are about to do as a church, which we start next weekend. Because I'm, I'm guessing every I'm guessing every genuine believer in this room wants somehow to see the gospel expand and come to other people and see their lives changed. If that's the case, I want you to tie that to the compassion or absence of compassion in your own heart and soul. The compassion of Jesus' love. Here's the third, the third angle from which we think about his love this morning. In just a moment, Pastor Allen is going to lead us in communion. And as he does, I want to remind you of the valor of the valor of Christ's love. When Jesus walked up to the face of that stone vault of a tomb, the Bible says in verse 38 that he was deeply moved. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. If you go back to verse 33, you see it says he was greatly troubled. He's greatly troubled. Clearly, there's more going on here than heartfelt compassion for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Yes, all that we've said about the compassion of Jesus is true up to this point, but there's something else going on. There's something bigger. There's something more cosmic in its scope that's going on here. He's greatly troubled and he's deeply moved because he knows what this is about to cost him. Once he raises Lazarus from the dead, all bets are off. The Jewish authorities, in fact, you see this in verse 47 and verse 53, that the chief priests and the Pharisees are going to gather together a council, verse 53, and from that day on, they planned to kill him. Jesus is not stupid. Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. He knows that the moment he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's burying himself. He knows exactly what's coming. He knows this will be the end of what the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities will put up with. He knows what's about to happen. He's troubled and he's grieving because he's sensing the cosmic weight of this moment. As Jesus stands in front of this, this tomb, he knows, he knows exactly what's going to happen. Behold how he loves you. See how he loves you. 
it's just, okay, it's like he walks up to this tomb and he realizes that this monster has Lazarus in the clutches. This monster has his friend in the clutches of death. And he knows that the only way to get his friend out is to throw himself into the jaws of the monster. That's exactly what he does. Because as soon as he raises Lazarus from the dead, it's, it's game over as far as these authorities are concerned. And he's going to be on his way to Jerusalem. And that's where this storyline changes. So the first, um, say, the first 11 chapters, maybe chapter 12 is a transitional chapter. The first 12 chapters are the book of signs. Jesus is doing this and this and this and this, all pointing to the gospel resurrection of his own life. Right? But then from chapter 13 on, it's the book of glory or the book, the book of his passion. And so this, this transition is really significant. Jesus gives himself, and when he does, he knows he is now on his way to die. And that's the valor of Christ's love. Leave with these words today. Leave with these words. See how he loved him. See how he loves you. I'm going to pray for us. And Pastor Allen's going to lead us in communion. And I want you to think about the powerful love of the resurrected Christ. The wisdom, compassion, and the valor of his love. Greater love has no one than this, than that we would lay down our lives for someone else. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have shown the greatest of loves by sacrificing yourself. Even in the midst of an amazing, powerful miracle, we see death is coming to Jesus. Lord, help us to see your love this morning as we celebrate the Lord's table together. Help us to see your love, we pray in Christ's name.